This message comes from PagerDuty. To be ready for anything in a world of digital everything, teams need PagerDuty. Their digital operations management platform is the best way to control urgent, mission-critical work and keep digital services always on. PagerDuty can be set up in minutes and combines the power of machine automation with human action, giving teams more time to create better digital experiences for your customers. Learn more at pagerduty.com. The Naked Scientist. It's now 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. It is our Monday date with uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Hello. We've got uh, fascinating questions coming in. And let me kick off with this one before um, Ivan underscore blessing complains because he's been asking. He's even tagged his previous question. (laughs) And he says, um, I really want to hear the doctor on this one. As electric fish can generate more than 500 volts, um, is there any way we can get a dam full of these fish and then connect our electricity? People used to uh, drive horses into rivers where the uh, electric eels hung out in order to avoid stepping on them themselves because it's quite true. They can generate considerable voltages. 500 volts is not beyond the realms of possibility, maybe even 800 volts for a big electric eel. The way they do it, though, is to use modified cells, a bit like muscle cells in your body, which are themselves electrical, and they stack them up, one connected to the next, connected to the next, a bit like cells arranged into a big long battery and the tiny voltage of each of the cells summates over the length of a really big long fish to make considerably high voltages but that potential difference is between the nose of the animal and its tail so Mm. in order to connect them all up you would have to persuade the animals to (laughs) provide their voltage and the the actual current that would flow through the animal it's a big voltage but it doesn't flow for very long so you'd need lots of them and have them all connected up in parallel and then you'd also get dc And DC is not so useful as AC, so you'd have to have a way of connecting that to AC current to to put into the uh, electric grid. So I'd say, great idea, certainly physiologically possible, but would it be practical? (laughs) Probably not. And you'd probably find it was quite painful in the process, because inevitably you you would find that you got uh, a few few snaps and zaps along the way when you're trying to set it up. (laughs) Yeah, it would be the occupational hazard of it trying would, to do yeah. that. <laughs> Thanks for the question there. Let's go to Tabang in Sibuking next as we're taking your calls this afternoon on zero one one eight eight three oh seven oh two. Which scientific phenomenon uh, would you like Chris to elaborate or explain to you? Zero one one eight eight three oh seven oh two. Hello, Tabang. How are you, love? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Ma. Uh, can you ask Chris? Uh, 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 alcohol content in an uh, in a, a beer, a bottle of beer. Mm. Uh, let's say six hundred and sixty. That's five percent. In a fifty liter, that's five percent. I don't understand it. How, how, how does it? How do I calculate it? And uh, the second one. Let me say I'm consuming a, a bottle of a beer that co- a, a consists of five percent of alcohol. By consuming six, it means that uh, uh, I'll be I'll be having thirty percent of alcohol. I just <laughs> need that explanation. How how do I calculate it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I can see Thank where you. I can see Thank where you, this confusion has crept in, because um, the percentage is the proportion of what is in that bottle that is alcohol. Now you <laughs> use five percent. That's it. That's an easy number to work with. So let's stick with that. Five percent alcohol means five parts in a hundred of what is in the bottle are alcohol. Mm. 
So in other words, five one-hundredths, which is cancelled down to one-twentieth of the bottle, is alcohol. So if you took a bottle of beer, about one-twentieth of what's in there is the alcohol, and uh, um, nineteen-twentieths is water. So if you measure the volume, say that bottle is a litre, then you've got one-twentieth of a litre is the total amount of alcohol. So if you drunk 20 of those, then you would have drunk a litre of pure alcohol and you'd be dead. Mm. But Mm. if if you just drink (laughs) one, you have drunk one twentieth of a litre, assuming it's a litre bottle of beer, which is alcohol, and that would mean that 5% of what you drank was alcohol. And that's, that's where I think you're getting confused. The percent means the proportion. So if you take one mouthful, 5% 5% or one twentieth of what's in your mouth at any one time, that's alcohol, but the rest is just water and beer flavours. Does that hopefully help to explain it? Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, because we see that all the time, 5%, and then you have spirits that are like, uh, what, 63% or Some of them, much, yeah. much higher. Though. But the, the yeah, idea is to high. give you the insight into how strong it is so you can then work out, well, mm. if it's not as strong, if it's 5%, then you've got to drink in volume terms a lot more to get the same total amount of alcohol because the thing that actually has the effect on your brain and uh, impairs you is the total Mm. amount of alcohol you drink, not the proportion of alcohol that you drink. So if you had one sip of 100% alcohol, it doesn't mean suddenly you're 100% alcohol. It means that of that sip, 100% of it was alcohol. But if you had a mouthful of that, 100% of the mouthful would be alcohol. If you had a bottle of that, 100% of the bottle would be alcohol. So that's why we use percentages, because it allows you Mm. to, to make that judgment about how strong the thing is that you're drinking. And then you can work out roughly how many of those you can have and still remain okay in other words to drink and at what point at what point do you die (laughs) at what level um the thing is it depends what it does to you because if it makes you fall asleep and and drop off uh, out of the window or something you know because people have accidents when they drink too much don't they so you could say you don't need very much to make yourself a bit encumbered and impaired and you fall over and (laughs) and hit your head but in terms Mm -hmm. of um, alcohol damage there are two ways to damage yourself there is a one-off big binge where you overdo it you impair your consciousness and this can mean people choke on their own vomit for example it's awful but that happens Um, and and it causes acute alcohol poisoning deaths as well when people overdo it in one go and that you know that leads to a lot of loss of life but by far and away the greatest damage done by alcohol is irresponsible long-term usage we all enjoy a drink many of us enjoy a drink and we do it responsibly so in other words don't drink to excess don't drink to drunkenness Mm -hmm. and if you do don't do it too often But the people who sustainably drink a lot of alcohol day after day after day, they may get to a point where they don't feel it affects them at all. And and that's because the body adapts to cope with the extra Mm. alcohol. But what it does do is continue to place a big um, poisoning effect on your liver. So over time, the toxic effect does build Mm. up and you get liver damage, but you can also damage other organs, including your nervous system, but especially your heart as well. So it's better to drink a little bit and have a few days off between drinks and do not binge to, to drunkenness, and, or at least don't do it too often, because that does damage too. Right. Yeah. Let's go to Andrew in Hamanskral. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Azar. Hello. Uh, Dr. Um, there's somebody who works at one of the leading pharmacies in the country, yeah? and she claims that the uh, sanitizer that, that we use on our hands can actually damage our fingerprints. Is there any truth in that? Uh-oh. I've wow. come across that. So the hand sanitizer damages your fingerprints. 
Because mm, no, it's got, I, what, 70% alcohol? There's, uh, well, at least 70%. I've not come across that claim. Um, mm-hmm. The the alcohol that's in a lot of these things, yes, it's about 6 to 70% alcohol in some of them. The way it works is that organisms which have around them an oily bag or an oily coat, and certain viruses have this, bacteria have this, some fungi have this, the alcohol damages that oily coating and destroys the infection. Not all infections have that, though. So there are some types of virus, for example, that do not respond to these alcohol hand rubs and norovirus, which causes diarrhea and vomiting, horrible thing, that is totally unaffected. Rhinoviruses that cause the common cold, they are completely unaffected. Adenoviruses that cause colds, completely unaffected. The best way to clean your hands up, actually, is just soap and water. In clinical trials, mm. people have actually done tests and shown that, that uh, running water and soap is superior, both in terms of cleanliness, but also very, very beneficial in terms of cost to alcohol hand rubs. So soap and water, very, very good. No evidence, I don't think, that unless you really took it to extremes and and wrecked your skin with excessive use of of some kind of hand rub and perhaps obsessive hand washing and so on, that you're going to long-term damage your fingerprints. You might dry your skin for a while, but uh, certainly you're not going to get through to the basement layer of cells that is what gives you the pattern on the end of your finger. So I think you'd be okay. All right, Andrew, thank you for that question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tabo, you've got a question about feet? Yes, hi, Azza, how are you? Good, welcome, Tabo. Fine, I was just curious, asking Dr. Chris, like, why is it like when your feet are so cold and then you suddenly get into warm water and the water just suddenly feels like it's over 100 degrees? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The reason is that the way the nervous system works is it's all relative. Uh, you are not so interested in absolute temperatures as how things are changing because arguably it's the change that really tells you more information than what the absolute temperature is. So what I mean by this is best exemplified by describing an experiment that everyone here can try for themselves. If you get a bowl of hot water, not too hot, but hot enough that you think that feels hot, and a bowl of cold water, say icy water or water you've had in the fridge, and you put uh, another bowl in the middle which has just got water which is halfway between the two, so sort of tap water, room temperature, and you put one hand in the really hot water and the other hand in the really cold water, keep it in there for as long as you can bear in the cold water and and at least a minute or so in the hot water until you've got used to the temperature and you think yep okay it was cold when i first put my hand in i've got used to it it was hot when i first put my hand in i've got used to it now transfer both hands simultaneously from either the hot water or the cold water into the middle pot which has got the tap water in it and you will get a really surprising result which is one hand will be saying my goodness that's boiling because relative to the cold water that cold to the freezing cold water that tap water is now hot and Mm. relative to the hot water that tap water is now freezing cold so one hand will tell Mm. you it's freezing the other hand will tell you it's boiling and it will be the opposite hand to the one that was in either the hot water or the cold water and this is because the nervous system is signaling what the the relative differences are and relative Mm. changes are far more meaningful to us and can signal far more information. Being sensitive to how things are changing and at what rate gives you far more information about your environment than just what the absolute level of temperature is.
And that's why the nervous system responds in the way that we've just heard, which is what, you know, when you put your feet, which have got very cold, into a bath that you would normally say, well, this is jolly nice, because mm. relative to how warm your feet were feeling before, that water feels boiling. And so you get a huge flurry of nerve activity firing off from the nerves that signal high temperature. And as you get used to the water, the nerves do what's called adaptation and they get less interested they they stop responding because the water temperature is not changing and that's why you then right. get used to it because the barrage of nerve activity was the nerve cells saying this is a change in temperature but as they get to the same temperature uh, that the surroundings are at then they stop firing so much and that's you adapting and you stop saying it doesn't feel so hot anymore that can be applied to so many things in life as you get used to it you just lose interest you, know, you, <laughs> you do. Know, it's, it's exactly <laughs> right that's exactly right smells are exactly the same and, and you know, people perennially phone this program and say why why do farts smell worse when they're someone else's and you know <laughs> but you know you get used to the smell of a fart because basically mm -hmm. it initially triggers your nose very very powerfully it's not that the smell suddenly goes away it's that your nose becomes much less interested in the smell and the receptors that were firing off a barrage of information saying there's a very nasty smell here they lose interest and the if you can think of it as the nerve cells uh, almost get tired of firing so fast so they they slow down their rate of discharge which means you then start to focus on other things and the reason the nervous system is wired up like that is if we were continuously paying attention to everything equally all the time we would find it very hard to focus on what's important. If there was an emergency unfolding in front of you, how would you discriminate the emergency signals from the background chatter that's going on? Whereas if you make everything just damp down over time and lose interest, novelty is what gets our attention, and that keeps us safe in the long run. Let's go to uh, David in St. Churian. David? Hi there, Zania. Hello, Dr. Chris. Sometimes Hi, the discussion between husbands and wives... You have to bring to a professional platform. <laughs> that uh, discussion between husbands and wives. These things because, you know. Uh, <laughs> so my question is, Dr. Chris, that every time my daughter displays any behavior that's got any negative connotation to it, right? <laughs> my lovely, dearest wife says that, you know, that's a typical brand behavior. Your family's like that. And I was like, but my family's in Cape Town. And you know what? You're exposed to more of your family up here and the dynamics of that. And I was like... Uh, is it inherent that the child can pick up something with stubborn behavior uh, just genetically or in the DNA? Uh, is that possible at all? Or must the child be in the presence of people to have them that can affect um, the child's behavior? Yes. David, that's such a fascinating question. I know someone who wasn't raised by their father. He only met his father in his early 20s, right? But... Yeah. They do things the same. Super neat. The father's super, super neat. So is he. Um, there are a couple of other traits where we first met him and he thought, what? Why? There's so many qualities that are similar to this person uh, that he that didn't raise him. Zero. Didn't raise him at all. So, um, <laughs> so Chris, how do we explain that? There's uh, a huge amount of nature and a huge amount of nurture that goes on. By nature, we're talking about genetics, and people have done quite comprehensive analyses, not on humans so much as other animals, but you can prove that there are behavioural traits that tend to be associated with the way you're genetically wired. And the best of these is an experiment on silver foxes in Russia, 
where for generations researchers have bred these foxes and they've bred them selectively according to temperament and they have been able to breed foxes which are extremely docile and they've on the other hand bred foxes which are extremely aggressive and very very concerned and worried about any kind of approach of, of a person so they're very very skittish and those behaviours appear to be heritable because the offspring of those foxes have the same behaviours as the parents do. So there's a healthy helping of nature in both nature and human nature because genes control how your body puts itself together. That includes the brain and the nervous system and probably therefore influences to an extent how different parts of the brain that do different jobs are and are concerned with temperament and behaviour wire themselves up and other things more peripherally around the body such as uh, testosterone levels and how sensitive you are to testosterone or other fight and flight and stress hormones for example. But then superimposed on that is probably the more dominant effect which is nurture which is the environment in which you're reared has a very profound effect on how your brain develops, especially when you're little, and, and therefore how you behave in subsequent environments. Because when we're born, our brain is very much a blank canvas. And although there is sort of a rough map of how things should work on there, it is your upbringing, the love you receive from your parents, your, your nurturing, how you're brought up, educated, your life's experiences, and how you interact with, behave with, and uh, get on with those around you that moulds you into the individual you become. So therefore, there will be, to a certain extent, some characteristics that you inherit, but the profound and strongest influence here is going to be those characteristics imbued into you by the people around you and the environment that you grow up in. And so uh, while it's true that you will see some things running in families, behaviour-wise, the vast majority of those things are going to be imbued in you from the environment and therefore the family unit. So it's not genetic, it's what's called a phenocopy, where you get something that masquerades as though it's inherited, but it's because <laughs> of the environment rather than purely a genetic thing. Yes. So, David, I'm curious, what are you going to say to your wife to settle this? As you say, now you have the yeah. the thinking and uh, the thoughts of a scientist. I'm going to tell her after Dr. Christmas crystallized approach to this matter, you know what? Uh, I will accept a few of this negative traits, but not <laughs> all of it. <laughs> I can't just accept all of it. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Christmas. Thanks, Thanks a lot, David. <laughs> Uh, at least he's willing to go back to her and tell her the full thing. Um, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Time flies when and you have, have a fun, doesn't it? Ahead. Yeah, and you. I know, we'll and see you next cool time. questions. Yeah, cool <laughs> questions. Brilliant. Okay, take care, Azza. Yeah, Bye-bye. Have a great week ahead. That's The Naked Scientist. This message comes from PagerDuty. In a world of digital everything, teams need PagerDuty a digital operations management platform that helps you stay on top of urgent, mission-critical work and keep digital services always on. Learn more at pagerduty.com.